episode eight. In tonight's episode, we're going back to Monday, March 19, 1900, 121 years ago. Harry Lauder, celebrated as Scotland's greatest entertainer, made his professional debut at Caddy's Music Hall in London. A former coal miner who entertained his co-workers in the mines, Lauder was encouraged to try out at local talent competition, where he was discovered and signed to a contract. At one time, Lauder was the highest paid entertainer in the world. The city of Glendora, Mississippi, was founded. And now, the New York Tribune. Let's check out the only woman's page on page five. Where to go today? Birthday party for the members of the New York State Household Economic Association at number 1,775 Broadway from 3 until 5 p.m. Talk by Miss Ada Webster Ward on Englishmen of Affairs and Letters During the Past 20 Years at number 45 East 29th Street, 2.45 p.m. Reception at the Evening High School for Women, number 211 West East 20th Street, 8 p.m. Lecture on the Literature of India by Mrs. Runtz Rees at the home of Mr. James Townsend, number 318 West 75th Street, 11 a.m. Drama Day at the Professional Women's League, number 1509 Broadway, 3 p.m. Meeting of the Sewing Class of the Women's Guild of the New York Homeopathic College and Hospital with Mrs. George Armstrong at the Osborne, 57th Street and 7th Avenue, Morning. Talk on Italian Art by Miss Clara Wilson at the San Remo, 75th Street and Central Park West, 10 a.m. Reading from English Poets by the Alumnae Shakespeare and Literature Class of Normal College in the College Library, 68th Street and Park Avenue, 4 p.m. Free Illustrated Lectures at 8 p.m. Mozart by T.W. Surrett in Columbus Hall, 60th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues. With the Harriman Expedition in Alaska by F.S. Dellenbaugh at Public School No. 87, 77th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And Life in the Philippines by Fritz Andre and William H. Reeves, Jr. at Public School No. 21, No. 55 Marion Street. Children's Party, given by the Twelfth Night Club at Berkeley Lyceum, No. 23 West 44th Street, from 3 until 6 p.m. Arkansas Federation Educational Committee Asks Club Women to Aid in Its Work List of Subjects That Are Suggested for Their Consideration What Has Already Been Done The Arkansas Education Committee has asked the club women of that state 
to give their consideration and furtherance to the following suggestions, which will, it is thought, be of use to organizations in other parts of the world. First, locate, if possible, our educational weakness. Second, provide works of art for the schoolroom. Third, encourage the establishment of kindergartens in every hamlet in the state. Fourth, stimulate business methods in club women with respect to prompt correspondence and punctuality in keeping engagements. Fifth, let interest be focused upon the child as the future guardian of our civilization. Sixth, encourage music, sewing, and domestic science in our public schools. Seventh, advocate a chair of pedagogy in state colleges. Ninth, investigate sanitary conditions of local schools and seek to create higher ideals for home and school. Tenth, let each club in the Federation establish during the present year at least one traveling library. The committee further recommended the frequent and general discussion of educational topics at club meetings and suggest the following subjects. First, the educational value of reading for children. Second, the study of Arkansas tax and school law. Third, educational influence and work of women's clubs. Fourth, the training of charity workers. Fifth, the growth of education in the United States during the 19th century. Sixth, the educational value of music and the results of compulsory music instruction. Seventh, the educational value of newspapers. Eighth, the importance of schools for special training in correct composition. Ninth, abolition of corporal punishment in our schools. Tenth, cultivate the speaking as well as the singing voice, and thus help obliterate the American voice as recognized abroad. Eleventh, the necessity for an industrial institute and college for girls in Arkansas. Twelfth, Influence of history and civics in formation of character. Thirteenth, how does the Arkansas system of education compare with that of New York or Massachusetts? The Arkansas Federation of Women's Clubs is composed of 60 clubs with about 2,500 members. The organization has five heads, education, household economics, music and art, Village Improvement, and Club Extension. Mrs. Frances Marion Hanger of Little Rock is president. Although the Federation has only recently celebrated its second anniversary, it has accomplished considerable work along educational lines. Circulating and traveling libraries and traveling picture galleries have been sent out by many of the clubs. School books, tablets, and slates have been provided for children unable to obtain them. Beautiful pictures have been placed in schoolrooms, and prizes offered for the neatest and most artistic public schoolroom during the present session. Through the Federation, a free scholarship in the Training School of Domestic Science at Worcester, Massachusetts, 
has been secured, and a bright Helena girl is now fitting herself to teach domestic science in Arkansas. Buffalo DAR Work For its patriotic work this winter, the Buffalo chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution has given this winter four courses of nine readings each on American history to the adult Poles and Italians of that city. The papers read were translated into Polish and Italian, and the subjects were as follows. Period of Discovery, Colonial Period, From Bunker Hill to Valley Forge, From Valley Forge to Yorkton, Makings of the Constitution, The War of 1812, The Civil War, Reconstruction, and Municipal Law. These readings were illustrated with the Stereopticon and were eminently successful in reaching a large number of the foreign population. Of the 400,000 population of Buffalo, 75,000 are Poles and 20,000 Italians. The efforts of the Buffalo chapter is in accordance with the words of Washington. Promote as an object of primary importance institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge thus developing to an enlightened public opinion and affording to young and old such advantages as shall develop in them the large, largest capacity for performing the duties of American citizens. A short advertisement. Don't fail to put on your shopping list Colgate and Company. Exquisite toilet and shaving soaps, perfumes, sachets, toilet waters, and dental powder. Eight-Hour Servants Mrs. Knowles asks what people with one girl are going to do. She declares mistresses expect everything from their domestics and give almost nothing. In speaking of the eight-hour schedule that Mrs. Emmons Blaine has adopted for her servants, Mrs. Christian Hegeman, recording secretary of the New York State Household Economic Association, said, from what I have been able to learn of the plan followed by Mrs. Blaine, it would not be possible to households keeping only one or two servants. As a matter of fact, the duties of a household where one or two servants are employed are not arduous. A girl's hours, judged from the time her duties begin in the morning until after the work is over for the evening, are long, but it must be borne in mind that the work is not continuous. If a girl works without system or intelligence, she may manage to fill in all the day performing duties that a girl with average skills could so arrange that she would have several hours to herself each day. American servants are well paid, live well, have comfortable accommodations, and enjoy a degree of independence far beyond that of domestics in any other country. If they are thrifty, they can lay aside money from the generous wages paid by American women. Compared with the hours women give to factory work, household labor pays better, gives a girl home comforts of which she is otherwise deprived, and is steady as well as profitable. It is all right if one can afford two or three relays of servants to employ them on the eight-hour system, said Mrs. Edwin Knowles of Brooklyn. President of Chiropian. 
But if that condition prevails, what are people who can afford only one servant to do? And where will they find that one when girls can get that kind of employment? <clears throat> it is my opinion that mistresses are responsible for three quarters of all the present trouble with domestic help. Women are apt to think if there is a girl in the house to wait on them, that there is no limit to her time, patience, or labor. The greater part of housekeepers make no allowance whatsoever for days when a servant is feeling badly or is perhaps out of temper. They expect everything, in fact, and give nothing. The aping of the so-called European aristocracy is at the bottom of the social ostracism which every woman suffers who enters the field of domestic labor. The eight-hour system, in my opinion, would have no influence to break it down. The side with the most brains must settle the vexed question. Help must always come from the stronger side. As to training schools for domestic servants, there will still remain the fact, in spite of them, that a servant who is a jewel in one household may be of no use in another. The capacity for suiting herself to her environment makes a working girl valuable to her employees. Mrs. Henry Clark Coe, President of the National Society of New England Women, has this to say. For the average family, I do not think the plan followed by Mrs. Blaine would be possible. It would require the services of several domestics in relays, and for those keeping one or two servants, such an arrangement would not be practicable. Mrs. George P. Lawton of the Bemis Heights Chapter of the Children of the American Revolution of Saratoga, who is spending some months in New York, expressed herself as follows. While I feel assured that the eight-hour system would not work in a satisfactory manner, I think the average servant has most comfortable time. Each of my four servants have plenty of leisure. The amount of work performed by one servant applies to all, and they receive $18 a month each. The upstairs girl, for instance, helps the waitress serve at table, makes the beds in the morning, does the sweeping, and helps set the table for luncheon and wait on it. The afternoon she has to herself to visit friends or dispose of in any way she sees fit, until the dinner hour, when she helps the table again, and then her day's work is done. The other servants have several afternoons at their disposal during each week, and they are treated with consideration and not overworked. I should not think of attempting to establish an eight-hour schedule, and do not believe it would be a success. One Woman's Occupation Transforming Buffalo Horns into Articles of Use and Beauty a woman living in Hartford, Connecticut, has turned her inventive genius and a large collection of buffalo horns to account in a way that promises to make a small fortune for her. A number of years ago, her brother in the West, foreseeing that the extinction of the buffalo was certain within a comparatively short time, systematically purchased all the horns he could find and so accumulated about 10,000 pairs. They remain stored in the little western town, forgotten in his growing wealth, and not long ago he told his sister half-jestingly that she might have them.
After the outer covering is removed, the substance left is as black as ebony and is susceptible of high polish. The secret of obtaining this polish was known only to the Indians at one time, but the Hartford woman visited many bone factories and studied the modes of treatment, in time learning how to polish the horns in an entirely satisfactory way. She is engaged now in designing articles in whose manufacture the horns may be employed artistically. They are used as supports for footstools, mounted as hat racks, made into dining room and library ornaments, flower vases, and many other articles of use and beauty. Mrs. George Carey of Calcutta Among the women who will speak at the ecumenical conference in this city the last of April will be Mrs. George Carey, who is the eldest daughter of the Reverend John Compton of England. At the age of 12, she pledged herself to foreign mission work. In 1866, she went from the Baptist Zenana Mission of England to Calcutta, India. There she took charge of a small normal school for the training of native Christian female teachers. After nine years of service, Miss Comston was married to the Reverend George Carey. She then assisted in general mission work, especially in connection with the Entelli Native Church in Calcutta. In 1897, the state of Mr. Carey's health compelled their return to England. Mrs. Carey is especially interested in the training of Native Christian young women for mission work. Her experience in the Normal School in Calcutta will enable her to speak acceptably on this subject at the conference. World's Temperance Congress A notable gathering of this year will be the World's Temperance Congress, which meets in London next June. More than 20 temperance societies, representing religious, scientific, and independent bodies in different countries of the world, will give accounts of their work and its results during the century. The Continental Societies are chiefly composed of clergymen and medical men, and their work will be presented mostly from the moral and sociological sides. The strictly scientific societies are English and American, one studying alcohol and its effects, the other the disease of inebriety and its causes. The Bishop of London will preside at the meetings, and Robert Ray, a pioneer in the temperance cause, will arrange the program. Public Office Given to a Woman San Francisco has taken an advanced step in appointing Dr. Beatrice Hinkle as assistant city physician. Her duties will be the care of sick women and children in the public institutions. Dr. Hinkle is the widow of a former assistant district attorney of San Francisco. Sewing for the Babies Mrs. James A. Trowbridge of number 57 East 34th Street has a sewing class at her home every Tuesday from 3 o'clock until 5. Music enlivens the working hours and tea is served at 5. The sewing class is for the benefit of the baby's wards of the postgraduate hospital and will continue through March. Grave on a Mountaintop 
According to the last request of Helen Hunt Jackson, the authoress, her grave lies in solitude on the crest of the Rockies near which she lived and died. On the summit of the Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado, beneath the shadow of the eternal rocks and giant mountains, and amid the wildness of nature, is this impressive burial place. Few tourists ever leave this region without visiting her grave, which is hidden beneath a mound of rocks and stones. No headstone marks the spot, but hewn deep in the bark of one of the tall pines are the letters H.H. Each tourist adds to the pile of stones by carrying one or two up the mountain. Veils as Beautifiers Women with insignificant features should eschew closed dots. A new invention that enhances the good looks of the wearer, popularity of odd designs. Nothing is so necessary to a well-groomed appearance as a pretty veil, and nothing so ruinous as a crumpled one. Crisp freshness is essential. In the choice of these dainty accessories, even the most economical women become extravagant. It seems to be a fact that pretty women insist upon wearing veils that too completely cover their faces, while those who would look the better for a disguising film favor light meshes. Real thread lace veils, with a border reaching from mouth to chin, are among the most expensive new designs, and beautify mouths doubtful prettiness. Madame Sembridge gives her name to a closely dotted affair, pretty and fashionable, but exceedingly bad for the eyes. Women not endowed with well-defined features should eschew the close dots. Small features become insignificant behind them. The open mesh, sparsely sprinkled with large velvet dots like patches, are generally becoming. They do not try the eyes as much as dotted veils. In London, a veil has made its appearance which will, its inventor claims, protect the most delicate skin from the evil effects of chilling winds. Even the most beautiful women are apt to look blue and pinched when exposed to the cold. This new veil is of transparent, colorless material, Light as a feather, yet so constructed that, worn under an ordinary veil, it protects the face as effectually as if made of glass. Its wearer will look as immaculate at the end of a long journey as if she had just emerged from her room. Another useful veil, and a becoming one also, has invisible eye shields underneath to protect the eyes from dust when the wearer is driving. Fine closed mesh veils are not so becoming to some because they darken the skin. Plain Brussels net and tulle are in this category. The new double veils, black over white, soften the face and are becoming to women of middle age. The outer veil may be any sort of mesh, but sheer white illusion always forms the background. A veil that will doubtless become popular has an irregular scroll pattern all over it, consisting of chenille dots of various sizes, 
from pinpoint dots to those the size of a pea. The scroll is of goodly proportions, sometimes reaching from chin to temple, and gives the face a curious appearance. These veils are scarcely becoming, but their oddity draws attention to the wearer's face. To wash white veils. Take a lined saucepan, and in it make a strong solution of soap and water. Put the veil into it and place over the fire to simmer for about 20 minutes. Then squeeze the veil in warm soap and water till it is quite clean. Rinse in cold water. Then again in a little cold water, to which has been added a few drops of blue and one lump of sugar. Shake the veil gently and pin it on a clean towel to dry. In bridal veils, two pleated fans of tulle are now used instead of the coronet arrangement. They stand upright upon the head as would an aigrette, and are placed one on either side of a tiny spray of orange blossoms. The fans must not be too tall or stiff. A year's work. Harlem Young Women's Christian Association shows an increase in interest in all departments. Advanced sheets of last year's report of the Harlem Young Women's Christian Association show that the total number of persons enrolled by the association in 1899 was 587, of employers registered 540, of employees 561, temporary positions arranged 170, permanent positions 72. The total class attendance of the year was 5,837, and the total attendance at all social gatherings was 7,000. Since fall, there have been 14 class sessions every week, with occasional private lessons in addition. The sum of $120 was netted by two gymnasium entertainments during the year, a portion of the amount being given to the building fund and to Miss Hill, the missionary of the association in India. The gymnasium classes, which are furnished with excellent equipment, are larger than ever before. There are six good shower baths connected with the gymnasium. The registration bureau supplies trained, and in some cases experienced, dressmakers, milliners, bookkeepers, nursery governesses, and teachers of music in kindergarten. Among the entertainments given during the year have been lectures, practical talks, a thimble party, scotch evening, magazine party, two large annual receptions, and many home circle evenings. During the summer, the gymnasium and roof garden were used for evening gatherings. You have been listening to Jonathan Reed's Old Newspapers. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the past. From now on, I'll be switching to a once-weekly format so that I can focus my energy on my fiction writing. I hope you'll stay tuned. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen, wishing you a good night, sweet dreams, and a smooth tomorrow.